Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. It is a huge pleasure to introduce the introducer and the next person up. Uh, Neil Gaiman is someone I've known for 25 years. Again, there's a sort of London-US thing going on all the time in the programming, but next year we might be all American. And uh, all I will say of Neil Gaiman before he's formally introduced by John Hodgman is, if there are only two books of his entire canon you read. My personal favourites are Fragile Things and the Graveyard Book, but I know that everyone has their own personal favourite. Um, John Hodgman is the only person I've ever introduced who insists that the best way to describe him is as a minor TV personality, and not only that, but a minor TV personality who has achieved greatness by playing a PC in a TV ad. I think that's, that's a first. So... Without further ado, I have great pleasure in introducing John Hodgman, who's going to introduce Neil Gaiman. Good afternoon. My name is John Hodgman. I was a very famous minor television personality. That fame is dwindling now that the television ads in which I played the PC are off the air, and so I've grown a mustache, and I'm going to put on a cravat now to complete my transformation into my new life as a simple, humble, deranged millionaire. <laughs> I've had a number of different careers. For a while I was a literary agent, and then I became a magazine writer, and then I became an accidental radio and television personality. Is this all right, everyone? Yeah? All right, good. And throughout all of these careers, uh, I have had one job that connects them all, and that is uh, talking to Neil Gaiman. Uh, when I first took uh, my first job in New York City in 1994 at Writer's House, I was uh, not only surprised, but frankly extremely relieved to learn that Writer's House represented Neil Gaiman. I was already a huge fan of his work, primarily through the Sandman series at that time. And um, uh, everyone else that they represented at the time were romance novelists, and I had no idea for that. I didn't know what that was, and I still don't. Um, and so I was extremely excited that Neil was there, and I would cook up any reason that I could to insinuate myself into his life. And I began writing for magazines when I was still an agent, largely with the purpose of uh, finding a way to talk to Neil. And through uh, 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 smoky backroom deals, I was arranged with his agent, Marilee Heifetz, that I would interview him for Time Out New York when uh, his novel, Neverwhere, was being published for the first time in the United States. And I remember we spoke by phone because we weren't such great friends then. And um, uh, for a long, long time, and I recall feeling like this is one of the most genial, nicest, smartest, and most brilliant men on earth. And I'm so glad that now that we've spoken for 15 minutes on the phone, we are best friends. <laughs> that was the impression uh, that I would often take while uh, working as a journalist, that I had somehow tricked these people into becoming my friends. For indeed, that's the only reason I spoke to anybody as a journalist. And Neil has a tremendous uh, ability to give people the impression that he has become your best friend. And sometimes it's true. Um, 
years later, uh, well, actually not that long, uh, uh, my eyes were opened when Neil then came through New York to, uh, to read from Neverwhere at the, uh, the Borders bookstore that is now no longer down at the World Trade Center. And I went to see my good friend Neil because he was going to remember the conversation that we had intimately, I was sure. And he would embrace me and say, it was so nice to talk to you on the phone. And I went to the reading and then I just saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people there. And I realized, well, Neil is something very special to all of these people, but we cannot all be very special to him um, all the time. And I felt very cowed by the amount of people who were there just to adore him. And so I didn't even go up to say hello because I figured he would just go, oh, right, yeah, I remember, and not. So uh, it was years later, I, I decided to set my nose to the grindstone and make myself, make something of myself that Neil Gaiman would want to talk to. And uh, I ended up writing a book of fake trivia, which put me on to The Daily Show, which then um, introduced me to the world of personal computer advertising. And, um, and th this about did the trick. And it was uh, perhaps seven or eight years later that uh, Fragile Things was coming out. Um, and Neil was going to be in town and he was going to be interviewed and merrily suggested that I interview him and I would say, yes, that's one of my jobs in life. I would happily do that. Um, and at that point, uh, um, you know, we had a really great conversation on stage to now thousands or at least a thousand people in that room as the audience, uh, audiences have grown as uh, people uh, in every country have discovered him and discovered him anew through the many different projects that he does in different media and different voices from movies to um, comic books to screenplays. Well, I guess that's movies too. Um, to novels, to short stories, to children's books, to picture books, to everything. Uh, and now music as well. Uh, with his wife, Amanda Palmer. And uh, at that time, I was just able to announce uh, to him and to the world that I had been cast as uh, the voice of the father and other father in the movie of Coraline, which I think took both Neil and I by great surprise. And our lives entwined even further. And um, since uh, then, it is now, that was about five years ago, and here I am again to talk to him. I will say to Neil now uh, that I consider this uh, strange... Uh, uh, stalkery obsession I have with you, one of the great privileges of my life to have. Anytime you wish me to talk to you, I shall be there, uh, whether uh, we have to sit in front of a bunch of orange chairs to do it or not. Uh, I, it's my pleasure uh, to always uh, uh, introduce and say welcome to Mr. Neil Gaiman. Have you decided which side you want to be on? Uh, well, why don't I sit there, and then you can sit there. All right. I guess that means yes. No, I haven't decided yet. Are you, how does this feel for you? Can, you hear, can you hear us? Boy, my cravat feels tight. Ugh. You're going to do the millionaire thing. You have to, you have to get used to tight cravats. That's true. Um, I, you, mi you missed out in your, in your giant list of, of strange ways that we had encountered each other. Yes. Um, you missed out one of the most fun ones where you, you again, uh, my life would be punctuated by mysterious John Hodgman appearances. Yes. And uh, which was Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, my friend. Yes, that's uh, right. Susanna Clark's novel, where you were writing a piece for, I think, the New York Times? The New York Times Magazine. Susanna Clark wrote the novel Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which was deservedly so a big bestseller a few years ago. And you had been a, uh, a patron, uh, I dare say, of her writing early on and uh, good friends with her, with Colin Greenland, her yep. partner in life. 
And, uh, and so that was another way. You're right. You, you remember what I've forgotten. There was another way that I insinuated myself into your life. Every now it's, and then I go, oh, you know, and the, the little red thing on the phone would flash. And I go, oh, we're getting Hodgman again. Hodgman again has snuck into my life. It may seem mysterious and serendipitous to you, but for me it's all carefully planned with the, with the, with the dark genius of a deranged millionaire. <laughs> How are you, Neil? <laughs> Terrified, John. Why? Uh, it's that sudden point where you realize not only do I have a stalker, but he is a deranged millionaire. That's it's, right. It's, it makes everything so much worse. I, 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 I thought am... I just had, you know, 1.6 million Twitter stalkers, but there's Yes, well, we'll talk, about, you. We'll talk about Twitter and, uh, so, you know, all right, you have 1.6 million, I have uh, half a million. So you're a little braggy, I get it. <laughs> I remember a time when we were neck and neck there for about three seconds, and then you went, went straight off into the stratosphere, maybe because you win a lot of prizes and write brilliantly, and I just stalk people, but you know. Um, five years ago, uh, we were talking uh, on a stage, not unlike this, and uh, uh, we're, it was, we were talking about your blog, mm -hmm. uh, which at five years ago was the thing to do, yep. and which you had already been doing, if I remember more or less correctly, for about five years. You started it for the initial release of American Gods, uh, your, your big best-selling novel, which is now being re-released. So yeah, the, you see how I've planned this, circles within circles. Beautifully. So, yes, exactly. It's a great pagan ritual that I'm undertaking. It's, you'll see at the end it's going to be very exciting. Uh, the blog was, was fascinating. The blog is winding down now, and I'm sort of pleased. It feels like it's, 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 um, it's winding down. There was definitely a point in there where it was probably one of the most widely read blogs in the world. Um, by the people who kept track of these things. Blog trackers. Blog trackers. Yeah. And I would, I would have people coming up to me and saying, how do I get 1.4 million people reading my blog? And I would say, you have to start long before anybody else was blogging, and then you have to do it every single day. Right. And, uh, which was what I did. And so, you know, before we talk about the end of it, let's talk at the, about the beginning of it. Why did you decide to write to people every day? Um, not something that a lot of authors have traditionally done in history. Um, what, I, what I wanted to do with the blog, there were two things going on. And um, one of them was that I was turning up at signings. And I kept feeling like I was disappointing people. Mm-hmm. Because they, and I felt like I couldn't talk to them. Um, people would turn up at my signings and they would be expecting somebody very much taller than I was, very much more beautiful than I was, oh. and um, who would talk in perfect iambic pentameter. And in these, and it wasn't me. Right. And I thought, and I, I was feeling kind of weirder as the, as the sort of the version of me in people's heads seemed to be getting further and further away from the person who did the writing and seemed more like the stuff that was being written. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I should do something about this. I, I like the idea of just trying to, to reclaim the headspace that is now being taken over by a fictional version of me. So there was that. And there was also... I, I had no desire at all to blog the writing of a book. Mm -hmm. 
And we were in the very early days, but I'd always been active online. I'd, I'd been on CompuServe when there was CompuServe, moving over to America, I, the Genie thing. I, I liked, I, you know, writing is a lonely business. It's you and a screen, so it's nice to have conversations with people and just feel like there's other stuff going on. Um, but you're I, not saying that, that you, you did not use the internet to create a tall, beautiful, pentametric version of yourself that would live up to No, I wanted, you I wanted, wanted people to see I wanted you. the version of me that cleans, cleans up cat vomit at 3 o'clock in the morning. Sure. Because um, it's hard for people to imagine the cool version once you've written about cleaning up cat vomit right. at 3 o'clock in the morning. If there's anyone here who doesn't own a cat, cats vomit all of the time in their house. <laughs> And many people who do not own cats, cats will come into your house and vomit, just to spite you. <laughs> you will tread in it. Um, always barefoot. Yeah, they study, they study where you step in order to make sure that they maximize the possibility of your walking in their vomit. But let's not talk so, about cat vomit any further. So, so the next thing that I wanted to do with the blog was, um, when, I, when I started it, i just written this huge book called American Gods. It had taken me the better part of two years to write. I hadn't blogged the writing process because I thought that was boring. Um, and, and mostly it is. You know, what, what are you going to write? I had a good day. This is how many words I did. Or I had a bad day. And I think this book is going to be stupid. And then the next entry is going to be, no, it's going to be good. And then the next entry, the next day will be, no, it's stupid. <laughs> That's as good as you're going to get. But I loved the idea of taking people from the point where in a movie in the 1930s, let's say, you'd see somebody type the words, the end, and pull out the last page from their typewriter, and then the screen would go round and round, and then the thing would say, American Gods, number one New York bestseller. And what fascinated me was actually going, okay, I, I like the idea of trying to take people from here to there. And I thought, so I will blog, and it, and it seemed like it had a story. So I thought, sure. good, I'll blog the next, you know, eight months. I'll blog through to September 2001 when the tour is done. It even has a plot. We either wind up on the bestseller list or we don't. That takes us somewhere. And I will blog copy editing. I will blog English versus American versions of the book. I will blog the sheer crawling nightmare, although I didn't know it was going to be a nightmare at that point, of trying to get quotes from, from, you know, by the right to use a quote from a Robert Frost poem that may or may not be in or out of copyright and all of that sort of madness. I'll, and I thought, I'll, I'll blog the process of getting blurbs, you know, sending books out and how you get blurbs and what happens and how you use them. So that seemed interesting to me. It seemed like I'd take people behind the scenes and then I'd take them through the process of, of the book tour. And, you know, it's a service, actually, because, I mean, first of all, very few people uh, write as eloquently about the sheer drudgery about being an artist as you do, but also the epiphany of it, too. Do you know what I mean? But a lot of people who read don't really do feel, and I think some book publishers do as well, that you press a button and a book comes out, yeah. or that there's a very romantic moment where you're, you know, writing with a quill all night long, and then it is the end, and then magically it appears in bookstores everywhere. But there's really... Um, a lot of hard work and craftsmanship that goes on even beyond the writing that people don't get. And there are weird things like like um, English and American versions of the same book where you get to have to cope with the fact that you've handed in a manuscript set in America 
that your American publisher is going to go through and point out that they do not use the phrase car park anywhere in America. It's parking lot. And why didn't you say that? And uh, your English publisher is going to try and cope with the Americanisms in the text. And you still want it to be the same book. Right. And then at some point, somebody is going to go, you know, we don't use the phrase round in America. We use around. And they're going to do a full search and replace and change every round to around and, and then hand take, it over to you. That will take seven months. And, and, and yeah. somewhere in there you will notice that people are now wearing around glasses and there are around <laughs> holes in the ice. Which, um, my favourite one of those actually was in Neverwhere where the publisher did a find and replace. Again, they, you go, why use find and replace? It is, it, is, it is death to publishers. Where somebody had decided to change flat to apartment all the way through. And people, and I'm going through this book and, and discovering people saying things apartmently. <laughs> but yeah, all of, the, all of the backstage stuff, which actually fascinates me because I thought you, I'm at least taking people back. And I took them through the book tour. And the book tour itself ended on, I think it was the 8th of September. And the first signing, the first event I'd done um, which was actually done 10 years ago tomorrow, was Borders at the World Trade Center. Right. And I went off on my tour, and I got back, and two days later there wasn't any World Trade Center. So you, you definitely sort of... And at that point... And, ten, that was the and, point, ten, and 10 years later we've built one floor of the yes. new building. But that was the point that I was going to stop the blog. Yeah. And suddenly I looked around and people were actually, and A, I now had, I think at the time, 40,000 people reading it, mm -hmm. um, which seemed like a lot at that point, and is a lot. Sure. Um, but also it was this moment where taking something that 40,000 people liked away from them just seemed like a very bad thing to do at that point. And so I carried on blogging through September uh, 2001 and then I looked up five years later and I was blogging to 1.4 million people and there were now, now you cannot take that away from them well I kind of have or is it easier to take something away from 40,000 I mean from a, from a million than it is from 40,000 it's easier to take it away from a million than it is from 40,000 why is that um, when I okay let me um because when, when, we, started, talk, when, we, when, when we talk about that, it's really the transition between a, a respectable, even best-selling author's audience, certainly, you know, since a lot of literary novels sell about 5,000 copies, to a mega, mega best-selling author's audience. Do you know what I mean? And in some ways, I, I mean, I do, you know your career better than I do, but I felt that there was definitely... Uh, a transition that that happened in your career once that, that corresponded with the blog, if not actually caused by it, but in that feedback loop of interaction, there became things really grew. Yes and no. I think the the most powerful thing that the things like the blog and things like Twitter gave me um, was simply not being at the mercy of whether an individual bookshop, for example, could promote a signing or event. Right. Um, I remember in, in, you know, before there was a world of online presence, uh, 20 years ago, 
doing a signing with Terry Pratchett for our book Good Omens in New York. And we had two signings scheduled, a lunchtime signing and an evening signing. And we went to the lunchtime signing, which was at Forbidden Planet New York. They promoted it very, very well. There was a line around the block when we got there, and we started signing, and we signed until, I think it was 4.35 o'clock, at which point we got into the car to take us to the Uptown signing, where we sat in an empty shop, and nobody came in, and we sat there for a while, and after maybe 35 minutes of sitting in an empty shop, we said... This is our hotel. We're going back there. If anybody comes in wanting a book sign, <laughs> tell them they can come and get us and just call our rooms and we'll come down and sign their yeah. books. And nobody ever did. That's the original interactive media. That come was, to my house. <laughs> we'll sign your book. Um, but that was the, the fact that you could be that at effect of whether or not one bookshop had promoted and another one hadn't or who, who they promoted it to or how they promoted Um for an author, it's a horrible thing. Right. And every author has some awful tale of, of the point where you're sitting in an empty shop for 90 minutes and the only person who, who comes over and talks to you wants to know where the toilets are or where the travel books are or whatever. They, they don't want to buy your book. It, it's suddenly... But now you can just Twitter where the toilets are and it's all taken I care of. I can tell them. Yeah. Yes, travel books, third floor. And it's great. So that for me was the... the, the the initial power of blogging was it didn't matter whether or not my publisher was effectively spending their advertising dollars and their advertising pounds telling people that I had a book coming out. I could tell them. And I could tell them in enough quantity and volume that on the day of publication, they would all go out and buy their copy and I would now have a number one bestseller as opposed to maybe the number seven or the number 11 or whatever, you know. Well, that direct contact that you're able to, to keep with your audience. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't want to say it allows you to manipulate them, but to deploy their passions in a way that helps everybody. I think it, it, it's, it's more, it's not even manipulation. Um, it's, it's, or even deployment. What, what it mostly is, is the idea that... You know, the fundamental thing that you're always told about advertising is most advertising dollars are wasted. You are, you are putting something in front of a million eyes in order to get a thousand, a thousand people who mm-hmm. will be interested in the thing that you put in front of a million eyes. Um, the great thing for me about having 1.6 million Twitter followers, which according to... Some website. I get. That I get it. You have a lot of Twitter followers. I get it. No, but according to some it. website that tracks these things, is like six hundred and sixteen thousand actual humans. Humans right. in there. They, they, somebody's got something, and I'm going cool. When you have that number of people, you have um, you're putting something in front of six hundred sixteen thousand people who are interested. Who've chosen? Who chosen so to, yeah. it's it's instant. Um, it, it, you know, it, it just allows me as an author to point things out. And to but, you know, th- to, to speak to what we were talking about, 40,000 versus one and a half million, um, in my own experience using Twitter, which I started to use because I found it to be fun, mm-hmm. and um, 
over time, I sort of ground out a following of 10,000, then 15, then 20,000. And I found it to be incredibly fun because there was so much great feedback coming in from this audience of people who truly had chosen to listen to what I had to say for whatever dumb reason that they had. Oh, excuse me. Um, then I got put on a list mm -hmm. of recommended users by Twitter, which I was very grateful for because all of a sudden the follower account, through no work of my own, grew... Uh, I, I don't know if it grew exponentially. I don't have enough math. Arithmetically, at least, very quickly, I think is what I mean to say. <laughs> you know, by 10,000 people a day yeah. until it started to, it, it, it uh, plateaued out um, in, in the 400,000 range, and now I'm back to grinding it out, I feel like. Um, still nothing compared to yours, Neil. I get it. I know. You're one of the best. But what I noticed as soon as it was above 100,000 was that the feedback kind of dwindled dramatically. Mm -hmm. People would say, oh, people must be writing back to you on Twitter all the time. And I would say that actually it's, it's almost nothing at this point, except for people wanting me to click on their video or to help some cause or retweet something that they've come up with. And the quality of, of interactivity has really diminished as I, as I went in this one little world from essentially a, a niche artist to a mass market artist. And I felt completely alone all of a sudden, and it's a lot less fun. I, I actually um, was fascinated by the fact that when I had like 10,000 people following me who'd all discovered me individually on their own, all of whom were fans and all of whom were interested, if I put up a link to a photograph or whatever, I'd have 8,000 people going and looking at it. Right. And then I looked around and I had 800,000 people following me, and I'd put up a link to a photo, and I'd still have 800, yeah, it, uh, you know, 8,000 people. That's because people don't feel part of that community in mm -hmm. the same way, I feel. And it's an amazing experiment. One of the reasons I continue to use Twitter is because it's an amazing um, source of actual data of how crowds work. And if you're talking about crowds of, of, uh, of readers or creative people or whatever, that's you know, fascinating in its own right, and it's also important to learn how it is you reach people. It, it scares me a little bit, though. I... I, I... You know, with, with with Twitter, I definitely have this. Um, you must use these powers only for good mantra. Sure. Um, I don't. Was, I don't feel that way myself. I, I I will use them for evil. I I. But well, the thing is, it's it's very easy to do inadvertent evil. Um, How so? I watched one thing which actually wound up being right and good, but it showed me how near the edge you can get. Um, about eight months ago, maybe a year ago, somebody twittered me complaining that Paper Chase in the UK had ripped off her designs and put them on their stationery, and they were refusing to even communicate with her about this. And she'd sort of gone, look, these are, these are my designs. And she sent me a link to her webpage, and I looked at her blog and went, yeah, Actually, I'm with her on this. And I put up a thing, not aggrieved, not anything other than saying, this is very interesting, looks like Paper Chase have ripped off this lady. And I went to bed. I got up the next morning, and it had gone viral. Enough of my people had seen it, they'd started Twittering it, everybody had seen it. If you All you have to do is click on this link, you look at it. And... Uh, 
there were the, this had hit the newspapers, and the director of Paper Chase was denying it publicly. And then a couple of days later, they were now blaming the design firm, and somebody from the design firm was apologising for having traced this lady's designs. And 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 at the end of the day, she was apologised to. They took it off sale. I doubt they ever recompensed her for it. But I, I got to watch the massed hatred and upset and grumpiness of millions of people being directed at one thing and realizing that I'd, I'd essentially lit a forest fire mm-hmm. and just dropped my match, gone to bed, and got up the next morning and it was burning. And I'm much, much these days less likely to retweet, to do anything where I go, okay, what are the results of this going to be if this is likely to end up in the, the instant hatred? You can, you, can mobilize, you can mobilize the grumpiness of millions of people so easily through yeah. things like Twitter. Yeah. And, uh, and you don't want to. So that's why I say that the use it only for good. It's so easy and people send me one of the, you know, I get one or two of these things a week where somebody is like, will you, will you just retweet this? And I look at it, I go, why? It, it actually doesn't, doesn't add anything to the joy in the world and it merely gets people grumpier and actually you could wind up with somebody who's essentially trying to do their job um, getting, getting the equivalent of two million people coming and yelling at them. Well, now you have transitioned, I mean, whether you see it this way or not, but as the, as the blogging starts to wind down, you at the same time went on to Twitter. So just five years later, Twitter has become a huge thing, a huge phenomenon in all of cultural media, uh, as well as news media and, and political media. But, uh, you know, no author is able to put out a book without their publishers telling them, you have to start a Twitter account. Yeah, and, um, and it's weird because from my perspective, I would I'm, I would be perfectly happy at this point leaving Twitter. Yeah, I'm going good. I've done what I set out to do. I've got 1.6 million people, even if a million of them don't really exist, and it's been fun, and it's been a lovely way to kill time. The the downside of Twitter for me, the moment that I actually went, you know, I'm probably kind of done with this, actually occurred a couple of weeks ago, where I was off writing, and. Um, and I, I was late on a movie outline. I'm doing this this movie for a, a, a Chinese film company right now. I'm very mm. excited and happy about it, but I, I got behind, so I went off to write. And I'm off on my own, a little place in Florida, just writing. And uh, and I tweeted one evening, you know, good days writing, but, but kind of lonely. And somebody wrote back and said, how can you be lonely with 1.6 million followers? And I thought of writing, I nearly twitted back to the guy and then I didn't, you know, that was... you, I, I nearly said, will you make me a cup of tea? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sitting in this big empty apartment writing away and, and I thought, actually, I'm probably done. But There were only the, two possible outcomes, you realize. Uh, well, the worst is that he would have turned up and made me a cup of tea, yeah. which would have been terrible. Or it would turn out he was just a robot. <laughs> <laughs> but the... Um, but the, but the downside of that is actually getting from publishers now publication plans for books of mine that are coming out 
and that include where, where, that, where they list the promotional actions that the publisher is going to be taking. And they say, Neil Gaiman has 1.6 million Twitter followers yeah. and 1.4 people meeting his blog. And I'm going, that's not actually your promotional action. <laughs> that's just this thing that I do, and I can stop that tomorrow. I, I, you know, what are you doing in the way of... And you can see them going, well, we don't have to buy posters, and we don't have to do all this stuff, because he's got all these people. Right. Um, and you've also got the downside of, of that, which is, is I'm just sort of figuring out for myself um, for example, I'm, I'm about to do a, a signing tour for American Gods. I'm incredibly lucky. Ten years after it was published, it's still in print. And um, we're doing a 10th anniversary edition. And um, I said, I'll, I'll do a signing tour. Once you get to the point where more than 1,000 people turn up for your events, you can't actually do a traditional signing tour where you sit and sign for people. Because if you're signing for a thousand people and you're trying to do the signing that's where you're actually being with human beings and at least saying what's your name and stuff like that, you will be signing till three o'clock in the morning. Which is not something you're uh, unknown to you. I mean, you, no, no, you, I've, I've done, I've you, done these you, signings till three o'clock in the it's morning. It's always I been just, a principle. I think, right? It has, yeah. but I'm now at the point where I'm going. I can't do go on a book tour where every event goes on till three o'clock in the morning and then you're up at six. Right. Um, you know, because I did one and it nearly killed me. Uh, where you know, I remember the thing of you'd get in at three o'clock, and the nice man who would bring you your cocoa was the nice man who two hours later would bring you your tea to wake you up again as you stumble off to the airport. I just right. thought this is this is stupid. So trying to do a tour now where we're selling tickets, it's a talk, and I pre-sign a thousand books because you can pre-sign a thousand books in an hour, 90 minutes, fairly easily if there's somebody taking them away from you. It's not hellish, and it means everyone can buy a book, and it's not perfect, and it's not optimum, and it's not personal, but at least you can make it work. Um, but part of the reason why authors do events, or at least from my perspective, is you want new people coming in. You want somebody who's sort of heard of you, and they come in, and they see you, and you talk, and they go, oh, I like him, and I'll pick up some more of his books. And they have a kind of personal connection, and they'll talk to other people, and it's that thing that you were talking about, about you know, doing an interview with me and being my best friend. You, you have a personal connection. It's now something that matters to you. You will probably buy more books, right. or you'll probably tell people that, I'm interesting, or that they should buy my books, or maybe buy books as gifts. It's a good thing. And but it's not, but like, none of those suckers are with you up on stage right now. No. Just, <laughs> I did it right. <laughs> but that's only because you're a millionaire. Yeah. Um, the, but it is the, the mad... Um, it, it's, it's like you're trying to bring in people from outside. Um, the problem that I've got now on this tour is we picked all these locations, most of them uh, thousand-seat places. Tickets went up for sale. I announced it on Twitter. Tickets sold out. That is a so, terrible problem. I'm sorry about that, Neil. Well, it's a problem if you're an author, and what you're trying to do is bring more people in. Sure. Because I'll be, you know, the, the, the events that I do now around the country, if somebody sees in their local paper that Neil Gaiman is going to be giving a talk and there'll be books and stuff at so-and-so, all that will happen is they will have a disappointing evening when they turn up and discover that it's sold out. 
And that's, that seems wrong. What I, I want to do something where new people get in. So, so what's the solution? I mean, you're an author, and not just an author, but a multimedia creator who figured out ear earlier than many uh, that, that these technologies would really allow you to reach out to and curate your audience, in a sense, and, and be in, in touch with them. And, to, and now that audience has grown, which is what it's supposed to do, and it's reaching the limits of your ability to have that same personal connection while also remaining a, a writer and a, and a human being who sleeps from time to time. And it's a very hard thing to, to manage to some degree, I would think. Yeah, I have absolutely no solutions to it. All right. Um, the, and, and I'm just sort of trying... I'm, I'm one, that's one of the reasons why I'm talking about the idea of possibly stopping doing Twitter or maybe walking off Twitter for... You know, giving it six months off or something like that, see if anyone's still around when I come back. Um, I don't know. I do know that I'm not writing. I haven't written as much. Now, I need to ask you about your writing, and before we go to no. questions, maybe you'll try to explain this to me. What do you have on your desk right now? What projects, what array of projects are there that you are more or less actively working on at the moment? Uh, in, in various stages. They're, yeah. they're like... Um, Things that are actively being written right now. There's a short story that seems to be growing into a novel. Um, that just—it's this cancerous short story. Mm -hmm. The last one of those that I, I did was Coraline. You know, a long time ago, where I thought it was going to be three thousand words, and I started writing it, and it just—I kept going, and the end started moving. So I've, I've got one of those which started as a short story and is just going, and I think it's going to be the next children's novel. Um, there's a book called Fortunately the Milk, which is going to be the next big illustrated book for kids, mm -hmm. uh, which Dave McKean is waiting for me to give him and will be like The Wolves and the Walls or, or one of those kind of books, only a bit longer and more adult. Um, I've just agreed to write a novelization of my episode of Doctor Who. Oh, cool. Um, because it was incredibly well-received, um, which was the thing that I was most nervous about, probably that I've done in the last few years, uh, because Doctor Who was just something that I'd, I'd grown up with since I was three, and well, I loved it. You, you know that I would sit here and talk to you about Doctor Who for three more hours, and only that, but I think there's some normals in the audience. So, so I, I wrote an episode of Doctor Who, the world loved loved it, and the BBC have now come to me saying, actually, all of those conditions of yours for writing a novelization that we said we couldn't do before it aired, everybody loves it, we can do them now. Right. So, we'll, we'll, I'll probably do that. I'm working on a non-fiction book about uh, the journey to the West and China. I'm working on... The great a, epic novel. A movie about the journey to the West. Okay. Um, which just came about because a Chinese film producer wanted a scriptwriter to do it. And I said, look, I, you know, this is my obsession currently. I'm writing a book about the history of the journey to the West and the true story that it's based on and what it became and, and contemporary China. So I'm working on that. Um, well, so then, there, then there's sort of weird little things in various stages of not quite coming to fruition yet. There's a, and I think American Gods 2 is going to be the next adult novel. So um, that's four books, as well as the screenplay that you're working on. 
as well as the launch of American gods, as well as being here. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the thing that I can't understand is when, when do you work? Why do you take on so many different projects at the same time? Um, I discovered when I was a young writer that the best cure that I had for writer's block was doing something else if I got stuck. Huh. Um, so you must have terrible writer's block. <laughs> no, but I get stuck on things. I don't actually believe in writer's block. I believe in getting stuck. Mm-hmm. And I'll talk to writers and they'll say, oh, you know, I have a complete writer's block on this novel. I can't, I can't write. And, and you go, but I get emails from you every day. <laughs> and they go, well, yes. And I'm going, but so this writer's block, what exactly? Well, I'm just blocked. I can't write. And, and I think it's just a posh way of saying I'm stuck. Um, because when I'm, you know, I, I get stuck on books from time to time. Sometimes I get stuck on a book for years and I'll put it aside and I'll go and do other stuff. And then one day I'll go, oh, I, I know what happens and I'll come back and I'll finish it off. And I think if you give it, you say writer's block because it makes it sound like a real thing. It makes it sound faintly cool and like some condition that will eventually be cured. Gardeners don't get gardeners block. <laughs> shoe salesmen are not allowed to have shoe salesmen block. They just, um, so for me, having something else that I can be doing is always a really good idea uh, because I get stuck. And, you know, you have a short story, you have a novel, you have something that you're working on, and it flows, and it goes beautifully, and it can go beautifully for days or or whatever. When I did American Gods, I cheated. Because I knew that it was going to be a big doorstep, you know, sized novel. Um, So what I did was I thought, well, I'm going to do something, I'm going to steal a technique that I was using when I was writing Sandman, which is having short stories that interrupt a novel mm-hmm. and give background and fill in. So you're, you're experiencing a novel, but every now and then you get a short story. Um, and I had the short stories there for when I got stuck on the novel. And so there would, there would come a point where I'd go, I have absolutely no idea what happens next. That thing that I thought was going to happen next, that doesn't feel right anymore. And what do I do? Well, I'll... I'll go and write this short story and see if it's still a problem when I come back to it. And I just, and that was how I, I wrote. a different part of the garden that day. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. You're writing something else. And I think as a technique, that's wonderful. If, if you can do it and, you know, the other, the other thing that is, is also bitterly true about writer's block, um, I tend to find is that when you you can have bad days writing, and they really are kind of bad days, um, and you have two choices as a writer: you can either give up that day and go, "I'm just having a bad day. Every word is stupid, not even stupid, stupid." Just the and word "stupid" over it, and over again. It, yeah, no, it's stupid, stupid. Idea. And why am I even trying? And the terrible thing about that is, if you actually get words down on that day, you come to it probably the following morning, and you read over what you did, you cross out a couple of things, you delete something, you fix a sentence that was particularly messy, and you carry on. By the time that you're actually copy editing that, 
you may be able to remember that you had that really bad day, but you can't find it in the text. It's not like, you know, this is beautifully written and that's terribly written. It's, it's all very obviously written by you. Well, maybe we'll bring some other people into the conversation if there are questions out there. Yes, the back. Hi, I'm not one of your Twitter followers. Um, I was wondering which You're the form- one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> which, uh, which format do you prefer? I mean, you know, we, we, movies or books or children's or whatever. Um, my, my favorite format of all, which I don't do as much as I should, because if I did it as much as I would like, I would have to send my children out into the street to beg for pennies, um, is radio play and radio drama. I love radio drama. It's, it's like making movies for lazy people with short attention spans um, because you write a script, you hand it over to a good director, they get a cast in, you have a read, and then over a weekend you record it and you have an absolute A-list cast because A-list cast will come in for radio stuff and you never have to do the things that you have to do in movies where you do a shot and then everything stops for an hour and a half while they change the lighting and move things further away to do it again. You just have somebody take half a step back from the mic and say it quieter or whatever for the long shot. It's, um, I love it. And it's like, for me, it, it combines the glories of comics where you have a sort of visual track even if you're making people create the visual track in their heads um, and you get all of the fun of a novel where you feel... I I always feel like a novel is a collaboration between the person reading it and me. I'm giving them raw code. I'm giving them 26 characters and a handful of punctuation marks and they are the person reading it is taking that and building worlds out of it. So if you're enjoying a novel, it has as much to do with you and the world that you're creating as, as what I'm giving you, um, which is very different to the experience of, of writing a movie where I'm writing something that's more like an architectural diagram and I'm giving it um, to people who will then make it real, but what is being experienced by everybody in the audience is more or less the same. So I, I, I love that you have all those things, but the truth is there are, there are so few places where you can do radio drama. And um, But if I could jump in, given the technology that is available to everyone now, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this is not just technology that allows authors to take control of their own audiences. You could certainly do a radio drama and sell it on iTunes and probably have a pretty... Probably make your money back, at oh, least, yeah. don't I'm, you think? I probably could. And it, it's one of those things that um, if I had several more bodies who could type a lot faster, yeah. I, I might actually do. Um, but in the giant list of things that people are waiting for, I don't actually feel that anyone's waiting for me to... You should become radio a radio drama. drama mogul. Start a radio <laughs> drama studio, put it out by the beehives. And then just commission other people to write that stuff. Well, I'm doing one thing that I didn't tell you on, on that list of things that I'm doing right now. Is I'm I working knew you were with, holding back on me, by the way. I just forget stuff. Um, I'm working with Audible.com. Um, we're doing a, a 
really fun. They Audible.com, who um, essentially do audio books, some of the first people to to stream audio books before anyone was streaming audio books. Uh, Don Katz from Audible.com came to me and said, "We're going to be doing this thing called ACX, um, which allows people." the number of authors who've written books and the number of books out there as opposed to the number of audio books is, is huge. There are so many books that have been written that aren't available in audio format. And we want to, we, and, and audible.com's problem is we don't have enough books to sell. We would like more audio books to sell. So what we're going to try and do is allow authors and agents to float books out there. And, Team up, find find readers, audition them online, find engineers slash producers who will bring this thing together. So, and so it's to, to crowdsource the the essentially, yeah. I mean, the, the engineering talent and the and the reading talent and books yeah. that have not yet been recorded. Absolutely, and allow authors and 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 so they came to me and said, "Would you like to? Could you help us with this?" So I'm doing this, this Neil Gaiman Presents line where I'm basically just looking at books that I happen to love that have never been done as audio books. Um, and I'm setting this thing up and you know, sending emails to friends of mine who are, who are authors saying, has anyone ever done these? And getting sad emails back from them saying, no. And writing back and saying, can I? And getting happy emails back from them saying, yes. <laughs> so uh, just getting this thing going Again, because I, I love audio books and I love audio stuff, and I wanted to make more of it. So, uh, sir, in the front. How do the responses you get from Americans and Brits differ? Um, you know, I think 20 years ago, I could have given you a meaningful answer to that. Because 20 years ago, when I was touring America for the same book that I toured in England, things were different. And um, these days, almost not at all. These days, and, and, and I really just, and by these days, I probably mean something like the last five or six years there's a, a strange sort of flatness that I'm starting to see where more and more people are reading the same stuff, experiencing the same stuff. And I'm, I'm certainly feeling less, um, you know, it, 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 it's as if more people are laughing at the same jokes. What do you attribute that to? I think mostly the Internet. Um, when I moved to America, I moved to America in 1992. And I remember that there were probably 10, definitely eight long years during which I was subscribing to things like the Weekly Guardian and the Weekly Telegraph and then discovering The Week when that came out and things. And, and trying to get English news just so that I didn't feel completely cut off from this place and so that when I went back, I could have a conversation about England. Um, and even then, feeling like I was going back to a faintly alien country 
in which I had unplugged from the, the media, from the water cooler conversation, from what was actually going on. Um, now I don't. Now I'm, I pick and choose my media inputs. My, my, you know, the Guardian has now become my probably first port of call newspaper. And it's the same Guardian that the people in the UK are reading at the same time, if not slightly earlier than they're reading it. Um, and I think that's true talking to kids these days. And by kids, I probably mean teens. Um, if there's a TV show that they like somewhere in the world, they're streaming it and watching it. It's on YouTube. There is a, there is a huge cultural... Um, it's, it's not homogeneity because they're very, very different country to country. But it's really interesting for me um, watching just the fact that you, you have something like this, for example, a huge American audience now for Doctor Who is kind of strange and very, very peculiar that... Um, the English Doctor Who and the American Doctor Who aired now six hours apart when my episode went up. And on Twitter, I knew when my episode was airing because my name was trending. And in the UK, as were several key Doctor Who related words. And then six hours later, it happened again. In the U.S., it's like watching and weather patterns, it was. Yeah. But it's but, I'm, but it's but cultural I'm, weather. But patterns. it's cultural weather patterns. Yeah. It's like the, this cultural wind is blowing and it blows all the way. And I think um, I think it's really interesting. I, I I know that I'm I will do less work on the next American Gods novel to make sure that it's understandable by Americans and by Brits because there is a level on which some of that work is, is already being done for me. And I think it, it's, it's, it is the internet. And it's not just the internet, it's all of the, all of the things that go along with it. It's, you know, Twitter and news sites. And I, I see this lovely woman commandeered the microphone for herself, so I guess we're going to listen to your question now. Thank you. So you mentioned before that you started a blog as a sense, uh, as a, an attempt to redefine or define yourself when others were defining you in ways mm -hmm. that you didn't think were were right on. And do you feel less of a need to do that now, which is why you're going to stop blogging, or are there other things that take its place? A, I, I kind of feel like the me in the public mind definitely bears more relationship to the me that existed then. Um, also, I kind of feel slightly less need to. I liked the idea of democracy in the sense of, and not democracy, democracy is the wrong word. I like the sense of communication amongst equals. I don't feel like you can talk to somebody from a plinth. Um, I think you, you know, even though obviously we are up on the stage, I, I do feel that most conversations are best had when you're down on the same level or up on the same level. Um, and I strongly disagree. What I like, what I like best about um, Twitter, 
is that feeling that essentially you are, it is completely flat. Um, this but is, if I may, that's a dangerous feeling for readers to have sometimes because there is something exhilarating about the same level of conversation that, and the intimacy that you can enjoy as an author or as a creator of any kind with your audience and that your audience can enjoy with you. But when they start perceiving that there is a sameness, it unleashes some of the grumpiness that you were talking about that's so easily unleashed on the Internet when people feel that they are uh, equal to the person who's making the thing that they love. And that's what happened with George R. R. Martin and the, and the, the readers of his Game of Thrones fantasy novels that are now on TV on HBO where it took him a lot longer than he expected to finish the book and suddenly it seemed perfectly reasonable for people on the internet to harass him mm -hmm. about it in very mean ways to the point that it was such an undercurrent on the internet that I had no idea about that when I read the first book last summer and I mentioned that I was reading it, 50% of the responses to me was what a jerk he was for not, <laughs> for not finishing the book when they wanted it to be done. Yep. And that is not there. And at the time, and you went to great lengths. Uh, well, you wrote one great essay on this subject, which I'll allow you to reveal the, the great line in it. But uh, just to remind people, you are not the author. This is the author. Yeah. Or as you I, but, put but it. I, but I think that was I, I, the the blog was actually called Entitlement Issues. Yeah. Uh, and it was from somebody who wrote to me expecting me to agree with him, saying, "Did I think that it was fair that George R. R. Martin had a blog?" on which he would mention things like watching football when they were waiting for his book. Yeah. And I, I basically said, look, okay, let me, let me put this very, very, you know, the, the, the succinct thing on here is George R. R. Martin is not your bitch. <laughs> and then I went off and expanded on that into an essay explaining that, you know, you as a, a reader... Your contract with him was to buy a book that you enjoyed. Your contract with him, you know, if, if he writes the rest of the series, that's great. He might die. Um, terrible yeah, things might thing. happen. That drives him crazy that he's mortal. And that what's interesting about it is that in ways that maybe we're old-timers aren't aware of, the contract is... Change. They're rewriting the contract in a, mm -hmm. in a much more different way. We have time for one more question, and, and this young lady over here I know is waiting. I, I actually am one of those Twitter followers. Um, I wonder how, since you've had so much interaction with your fans on the blog and on Twitter and all that, how has that influenced your writing? Does it make it in there? Do you make changes based on that? Do you go different directions? I saw a little bit of that, I think, in action with the 8 and 8 project. Mm -hmm. The 8 and 8 project, which we haven't even mentioned, was my favorite way of playing with Twitter um, recently, it was I, I, my, um, Ben Folds, the musician, formerly of the Ben Folds Five, but now Ben Folds. Um, my wife, Amanda Palmer, whose music was actually playing as, we, as this thing started. Uh, somebody called Damien Kulash from a wonderful band called OK Go and I were... Um, this, we had this project called Eight in Eight. The idea was we would write and record eight songs in eight hours. And we failed. We actually did six in 12. We discovered that it took us an average of two hours to write and record songs. Um, but what was interesting with that was 
trying to figure out ways that I could get Twitter to work for us. And I watched Amanda during the course of the evening trying to use it in a way that actually worked against what she was trying to do. Um, what I would do with Twitter was throw out the... What I wanted to do was demonstrate that... Somebody had said something like, oh, well, they'll obviously have a bunch of songs pre-written. They'll obviously come into this thing and have all the songs pre-written and then just pretend to be doing it. I thought, well, let's, let's really demonstrate we really are not doing that. Let's have fun with this. So I threw out a bunch of questions like name, you know, just name a historical personage and got a few back from those and, and you know, saw Nikola Tesla's name coming up and I thought, Nikola Tesla, that's nice. That has a rhythm to it and I can do lots of puns about, um, you know, when I saw you, you know, my, my you know, striking sparks and coils and I can do all that. That'll be fun. Um, asking them for things that, and I put a question out, which was something like, something that only happened once. And people came back with the most strange and beautiful 140 character responses. And somebody wrote about seeing a squirrel committing suicide in a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that, I've got to write that one. And changed it to bath because I could rhyme with laugh. But, you know, so that was, that was the fun of, of doing 8 and 8. But apart from that, I don't think it really has influenced because you don't want to... You never want to give fans what they think they want. What fans think they want is what they liked last time. Um, no fan is ever going to ask for the thing that you're actually going to do, which is not what they ha they've experienced before or liked before because they don't know that they want that yet because you haven't given it to them yet. So I think if you listen to people, you will always be, you're, you're going to wind up in this sort of diminishing spiral of giving them what they want and giving them what they want. So from the very beginning of, of doing Sandman, there have been places where I've always wanted to interact with an audience. I've always wanted to know, is something working? Is this, is this thing that I'm doing? Back then it was using readers' letters as a guide to, okay, this thing that I planted, are they going to okay, they've all seized the hook on this and they all think I'm going over here, but I know that I'm going over there. So that was useful. Um, the, the, there's a glorious fun in instant feedback. You know, I, I'd realized by the evening that my Doctor Who episode went out that it had worked, that just people had loved it, that it was, you know, by the end of the week, it's, it's scoring the highest percentage of loves on individual stories on, you know, on the news for five years or whatever. It was, it was just wonderful. And I knew people loved it. And that made me very happy. And, and it was a good thing. But I would never have gone out to Twitter to say, do you think this thing that I'm going to do on my Doctor Who is a great idea? Because how would they know? <laughs> what I'm going to give them is the thing. Well, on that note, I'm afraid we're out of time, so let's move on to my favorite part of instant, or favorite kind of instant feedback, applause. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll... <laughs> <laughs>